Luke, thank you for coming on. I, I want to start this conversation by talking about the popularity of MMA and how I could be onto something here, but I'm not entirely sure. The world, everyone seems to think, is getting more sensitive uh, and, and more about being politically correct. But at the same time, cage fighting is becoming more and more of a popular sport. Why do we see this this rise in MMA and this popularity? When you say rise in popularity, give me a time frame or like a horizon by which you are defining a rise. Well, rise so, since when? So I would say since like the early UFC days. And yeah. because I know from my personal perspective, like uh, my dad being, he's a, a sports writer, a longtime sports writer. And the way that... Uh, MMA was shown or at least believed to be by like the older sports writers was like it's this crude just kind of awful downtrodden sport and yet now we're kind of seeing it as like a very very popular sport with the interest of many people so I would say let's say the last two decades or decade and a half Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that would go into that. I think the easiest answer would involve something along the lines of how the industry was managed or run by its chief stakeholders, and then something something particular about MMA. So on the other side, the, 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 the business side of things, basically... Um, the UFC, and listen, there's been a lot of power changing hands. The UFC ownership has changed hands several times. There have been, there used to be a world like when I was really getting into MMA a long time ago, um, the polarity of MMA was very different. Uh, Japan was as important, if not the most important, actually quite outright was the most important for quite some time. And so that's really no longer the case. But if we're just talking about the North American market, which is the chief pay-per-view buying market, and so therefore maybe in many ways the most relevant one, the answer would be the UFC just did a really great job over the course of time with a few hiccups in making sure this was marketed the right way. I mean, if, if, like we all look back at the early days of UFC and the marketing around it is like, you know, gore first and whatnot and, yeah, you know, yeah. really like outlandish and people sort of like decry that today with good reason. But at the time, that was a very effective way to get attention. The problem was it just got you a lot of negative attention. And so when you talk about the last decade plus of growth, what you were probably going to be noteworthy is the Ultimate Fighter playing a role on Spike TV and introducing this to the American household through this reality show Prism. And then prior to that, the UFC being bought out by uh, Zufa. The previous owners were called SEG and then Zufa, which was the Fertitta brothers, the, the billionaire casino magnates of Las Vegas working with Dana White. Um, right. They purchased it, and they really did a lot of things interesting. There's a bit of a myth that they were the guys that ran towards regulation. That The move towards regulation was already in play before they got there. This is a famous thing called the Zufa myth, but it is fair to say that they definitely facilitated that. They were going state by state by state to get this uh, uh, you know, uh, regulated in a way that folks understood through natural mechanisms, the, the existing, and then they would help create otherwise state athletic commissions. And then they just really knew how to, like, it, let's just, listen, MMA is a star-driven sport, and they just had a good crop of stars. They were able to help market. Obviously, those guys helped themselves. In many ways, it was the golden age of the, the light heavyweight division with Randy Couture, Vitor Belfort, Chuck Liddell, Tito Ortiz, Vanderlei Silva, and, and, and Rampage Jackson at the time in Japan. Um, but they just had a really interesting way of marketing it. They also, like in trying to get it regulated, made a really hardcore effort on making it palatable to wider audiences, trying to put a lexicon and a language on things so that it wasn't cage fighting, it was mixed martial arts, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't ultimate fighting, it was a sport. They were trying to really, like, put a language around it that folks understood. And they were also, like, hyping up the fact that Chuck Liddell does have an accounting degree. That's real. Rich Franklin was a math teacher. They would really lean into that. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is that MMA is very engrossing. Um, you are watching something that is highly unusual. It is exceptionally violent, which I say as someone who's been watching it for most of my life. Uh, it is it is that. And it is also highly scientific. And at the time in which the things began to really get rolling around 2005 with The Ultimate Fighter, what you really began to notice was 
every year you could watch innovation take place in real time. You know, yeah. you weren't handing down old secrets that everyone just already knew were the best. Nobody really knew exactly where this was going to go, although the better ones had some clear vision about it. And so you could just watch this thing get better and better and different. And now athletes from other sports are getting into it and they're bringing more to it. And every and I've been watching this as, as long as I can remember. Well, you know, I, I found it in age 14 from a friend, but the point I'm trying to make is, you know, through my whole adult life and much of this, I've been watching it, and I can't tell you, even to this day, I get surprised by things I see, innovations that come up with, things you think are impossible become the possible, and so that's just extremely engrossing for the right kind of audience. You marry that with the right ownership group, you marry that with the right kind of marketing, and a few pieces of good luck, and the ultimate fighter, and here we are. So you have you have the evolution aspect, which is something I didn't think about, but also the marketing aspect from... Uh, what was it? The Zufa group it was yeah, basically. Yeah. So, but I guess the route that I was thinking more along the lines of, and and maybe I'm one of these people that were just subverted by incredibly good marketing, but I was thinking along the lines of just like humans in general just being attracted to this thing. Um, but it could have been, you know, made out for me to believe that when in fact I was just marketed to very well. Um, I, I do think though, like the evolution of a sport is really attractive to watch something become something. I think that's what a lot of people saw with CrossFit. Like that's what what drew them to it is like, the athletes themselves were getting better and more refined year after year after year. And it was very noticeable, the difference. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, that's, that's a definitely a, a big point that I didn't really think of is like, the surprise that you can get from fight to fight, from card to card, is 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 crazy, um, and to see new new things played out. And I, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that I wanted to to ask you about. Was I guess as a as, as a practice, but also physically, what are the differences now between athletes? Uh, that like compared to the ones of the past. So you bring up Chuck Liddell, you know, compared to some of the Dagestani guys. What are the differences that you see there? So the you you might be tempted to say that only now are really good athletes getting into it, but that's actually not quite right. I mean, even in early UFCs, you had Dan Severn, who was actually a pretty good wrestler in, throughout the course of his life at various levels. Um, and there were some other ones that were actually pretty good athletes as, as well. But definitely your fat karate instructor guy doesn't really have a role in the sport anymore. Like <laughs> the strip mall karate guy really took a hit with, with the growth of mixed martial arts, you know, um, for, for a variety, a variety of different ways. Like the, like the guys who you see on Instagram, they just touch people and they fall and shit like that. That, that, that dude no longer has a role. So one, you got kind of rid of the riffraff, but as I mentioned, like Mark Schultz is arguably one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, certainly in the American side of things. He was the guy that was basically um, featured in the movie uh, with um, Steve Carell and, the, and, and John DuPont, the uh, Foxcatcher. Foxcatcher is the guy. Yes, yeah. He did fight only once in the UFC, but this was a guy who won, I think, a national NCAA title like two or three times, you know, and, and beyond that and the Olympic level. Anyway, so the point being is it's not like they only got into it, but the, the one is Riff Raff is gone. That's the one. The second part was you got guys who are like pretty good to maybe even really good athletes, not guys who had been like lifelong athletes necessarily, although in some cases you did get that. But there was a slow recruitment of guys from composite sports that actually already had developmental programs. Worldwide amateur wrestling has developmental programs. Judo, because it's an Olympic sport, has worldwide developmental programs. Sambo to a lesser extent, but there is obviously a competitive architecture. The guys who are coming from the competitive architecture, you slowly see them start to come over and come through. And the results were mixed and, and weird at first. Um, and then... Um, you know, obviously, the, the, to the surprise element, like when Mark Coleman got his face kicked off, um, there was this sort of shock about, well, a kickboxer can beat a wrestler. And so it, it, it would also begin to sort of, you know, get this weird recruitment going on about who would come. But the big one, again, stateside, would be the success of people from collegiate wrestling who didn't really have an outlet for the Olympic Games, like or, or did, but otherwise they didn't have any time. Kevin Jackson fought Frank Shamrock, so it's not totally true. But like the Matt Hughes's of the world were really like yeah. big influencers. I think he was a two-time All-American, never a national champion, but like a guy who was obviously a very good athlete and was not gonna good enough to make a world team, but he could, you know, he could fight his ass off. 
those guys started coming a lot more. You began to see that. Now the weight classes are starting to get more filled out and more diversified. You're also noting that the weight, the uh, the sport is now at this stage certainly significantly more global. So you're pulling from not just Brazil but Spanish-speaking Latin America. Canada's taken a bit of a hit, but obviously North American wrestling is a big deal. Blah blah blah. So the, there's this all kinds of different sized athletes. They're, they came from composite sports. I think the, the thing I'm looking at now is, again, is like worldwide recruitment. What geographic hotspot areas that we know have a relationship to combat sports yeah. historically are we pulling from? You mentioned the Dagestani guys. Right. And, you know, they come in all shapes and sizes, but they all look like hammers in the end. Um, so the current state of things is the women's side is certainly far behind the men's. There's only three women's weight classes in the UFC. They'll probably add Adam weight which is 105 at some point uh but at this stage you get a lot of different kinds of athletes albeit heavyweight still a little a little thin i would say the roster do you, but do you think that like training styles dedication like is it more professionalized now oh like so meaning yes, like like are we dialing in and and these differences from year to year are they going to be different are they are, are they going to be less stark the differences yes if so this means. is this is a great point that you bring up in terms of like how people operate in the gym mm-hmm. you gotta you know nothing is ever consistently true there are you're going to see and i don't say this necessarily it's complimentary and it's not you're going to see barbarians still training in barbarian kinds of ways. (laughs) I mean, that's not totally going to go away, especially in some older cultures that might have some more handed down older practices. But I would say definitely, even in my own time covering the sport, the training has gotten significantly smarter, Mm -hmm. especially around injury and recovery. Or or even now, uh, you'll see a guy, I don't know if you know, Phil DeRue. Phil DeRue was a strength and conditioning coach for a long time at American Top Team. He's doing his own thing now, still located in South Florida. I mean, so much of what he does is building in, because uh, he's had his ACL torn and he's had a lot of issues about building in, um, you know, to the extent possible, uh, the kinds of workouts or other forms of, you know, programming around injury prevention but like the UFC has the performance institute which is essentially built around this I would say it has gotten way smarter guys realize that the gym will age you pretty quickly yeah and then 10 years down the line did you make the money you wanted to make maybe not but you've already peaked and so this is all kind of over I will say that training's gotten a lot smarter on the other hand the the Injury is a massive problem in MMA for a couple of reasons. One, it fucks up cards where you're like, oh, I can't wait to see this fight. And then they consistently fall through because the injury load is significant. You know, I've had to, as a result of my job, I've had to go to Jake Paul fights. And, you know, I'm not here to recruit people to that. If it's for you, great. If it's not, that's also great. But I talked to all these MMA fighters and I talked to them about training boxing. And they're like, I cannot tell you how much better my body feels doing boxing. Like, I don't even feel remotely as bad. Yeah. Uh, right? Yeah. So the injury load in training and, like, what the guys have to carry with them through training into fights, what they get in fights, what are chronic, what can they deal with, what can they not deal with, that part is still really, really difficult for everybody. Yeah, and it's, like, they're it's becoming more of an established sport, but the, uh, I guess what you put into it is not always what you get out of it even at the top at this point and if you were to compare it to the top boxers uh as far as money per fight and a bunch of different factors like boxing is still incredibly dangerous like you know that right everyone knows that but yeah i i think there is a massive grind here if we if we switch it over to because you you had mentioned jake paul um do what do you think about the potential for a Jake Paul and Andrew Tate fight? <laughs> I've not watched much tape on Andrew Tate. Um, I try to. It's just a personal thing. There are a lot of things on the internet or even YouTube culture in particular where everyone is supposed to have a very strong opinion about, like. Um, you know, I, I could I could name a lot of things. I don't even want to introduce them for fear of right. For fear of just you know constantly stirring the hornet's nest, I don't know much about Andrew Tate. That's on purpose. I've seen a couple of his opinions, like on sushi and shit. They seemed real stupid, uh, but I don't know. I, I, I candidly, but I don't guess know anything. I guess as far as like it, like because I, I love the discussion of celebrity boxing and, yeah. and not even and how it kind of shook up the world of boxing and was like you know uh, you think you are this established 
thing. No one can mess with our tradition. And then next thing you know, you've got a couple of YouTubers coming in, absolutely <laughs> ransacking the place. Um, and I think Andrew Tate and, and uh, Jake Paul, like that's going to be the biggest pay-per-view buy of of at least that that I could think of. It's probably the best option as far as like getting people to be interested in boxing and celebrity boxing. It's like, does this represent the beginning or, or uh, is this going to continue to go on or is this going to be like kind of the final thing? Or like, I, I just love thinking about that discussion. The, 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 this boxing is like such a traditional, such a like viscerally uh, old school thing. And yet here we are doing something completely different. So I would actually argue he did not really shake up boxing, uh, at least not yet. Now, he has certainly shaken up some of the ideas around boxing. Uh, there's a larger, broader conversation about the sort of YouTube, Instagram, like let's fight culture and what that's mm -hmm. done to bring a younger audience to boxing. There is actually some data around that, that they're, that they, the largest growth of younger audiences among combat sports has chiefly been in boxing in more recent years, which is an interesting thing to consider. But it's actually not boxing he's shaken up. It's actually MMA he's shaken up. And the reason why I say that is because he... The, the, people misunderstand Jake as like, oh, if you like that, you have terrible taste. I'm not here to say what is or isn't what people should like. They should like, you know, life short and like what you like. But he picked a fight with the MMA industry, right? Here's what he basically realized. He realized he could get good enough to take aging MMA talent at the end, like roughly the end of their career, and he could box their ears off relatively easily, make a lot of money doing it, and can also get those guys paid in an industry where there are some legitimate monopoly concerns around the UFC, right? It's a very differently structured industry than boxing. In fact, he can only go into boxing by virtue of the latitude he has to pursue these opportunities, which he would not really exist in MMA, getting back also some of the other concerns about injury load. And he has picked them off one by one as he escalated yeah. up the ladder, constantly going after Dana White, constantly talking about fighter pay, constantly talking about these issues. The trouble he has found himself in is that he actually might be too good for that now, that particular, not like yeah. good opponents, but that particular lane in which he was going down. You mentioned the Tate fight might be the biggest. There is a conversation around how big a Nate Diaz boxing fight would be. I tend to think Nate Diaz is a proven draw on pay-per-view, and for that reason... Do you I think would... Nate, but Nate versus, I mean, Nate versus Jake uh, in a boxing match, Like, you think that's going to outplay uh, Tate? And, uh, I do. I do. You do, yeah. really? I mean, I can't listen. You can't ever say it with confidence because Tate is sort of a very polarizing, controversial, and despite being canceled, well-known figure, mm -hmm. right? And so for that reason, it's it's a little bit of a wild card play. But I would. What about what I would, Connor? Where would Connor fit into this then? Connor would be the biggest. Connor would be the biggest. He would be that, bigger. Yeah. He, he would be bigger than Diaz. He would be bigger than anybody. I don't know a bigger name than that one, really, um, unless it was like Mike Tyson or something. But yes, Connor is the biggest name. But what you also have to remember about pay per view is pay per view is v like either you can draw on that or you can't. Um, and if mm -hmm. you've never done it before, it's very hard to say what a guy could pull uh, to like known wider audiences. Like whose right. Q rating socially is higher, Tate. Jake Paul or Nate Diaz? I would say Nate Diaz is the most popular of the three, actually. Interesting. So, Interesting. Uh, star, star, remember, people don't buy fights for quality. Not often. What they buy is for star power. And who's yeah, got the highest yeah. star power? I guess the uh, something that Chris had pointed out, um, my, my roommate Chris, he, he said, like, you know, if anything, Andrew Tate is kind of like falling stock and he's never going to be this high again. That's like his inference. So it might as well be a good time to get him now. I think if if uh, Jake Paul were to go for someone else now, I mean, if it was Connor, that's the best. I agree with you. I think that's the best case scenario. But if he goes for you know Nate Diaz now and then later a year, two years from now, it's Andrew Tate. It might not be the same Andrew Tate that we all kind of know about. So, but here's the thing I would I would caution against in that line of thinking. Mm -hmm. It's if you're Jake Paul, part of it is obviously to just make money and make a lot of noise, bang the pots and pans, so to speak, right? Like obviously that's a very clear part of it. Look at me, yeah. But the other part is if you beat Andrew Tate again, I do know that he had some kickboxing. I'm not I've not watched a ton of tape on him. I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other on his abilities as a fighter. But I've obviously seen everything Nate Diaz has done, and I have sort of an understanding within the MMA world about how much cachet there is. Like if you're Jake, I, you know you can. We can we can debate how competitive the fight is, but if you're Jake and you beat Nate Diaz, 
there's a lot of value in saying you beat Nate Diaz. You have that W on the resume. I think a lot of folks wouldn't actually know what it means to beat Andrew Tate. Like, what exactly does that, what, well, what, what benefit does that confer? Wasn't he a kickboxing world champion? Sort of. Not, not, not in the way that you might imagine. He was a world champion. There's a lot of different sanctioning organizations and a lot of different kinds of uh, prestige. The kind he had, again, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I genuinely, I'm not trying to knock it. He certainly yeah, yeah, has done yeah. far more than I've ever even attempted. Right. Um, but we're not talking glory level. We're not talking K1 level. Right, That's not right, the level right. we're talking about here. Okay. Yeah, so uh, it, it is always an interesting thing to think about. Um, and I, I like Conor McGregor, to me, is just, he's, no matter what stage we're in with Conor McGregor, it's like he cannot... <laughs> stay out of the limelight what do you think the evolution for him is like what like let's just say he continues down this track like how long does it take for him to become completely irrelevant in mma a while a while uh unless he had like a really really bad knockout loss um passions die hard Right, fandom. People think fandom is fickle, and it is in the short term. But the mm-hmm. there is the, the there is a very silent majority of people for any fan, Connor or Nate or pick pick any celebrated figure in combat sports. Like I remember, this is like a, here's a really weird stat that will maybe will blow your minds, but it's always blown my mind. Um, one of the smaller organizations, they're now on Showtime. They under different ownership, they were on Spike TV. Is called Bellator. Now Bellator has some yeah. very good yeah. fighters. It's not equivalent to the UFC, but it's a good organization that does have some really good talent. They had some this past weekend. Um, if I had to ask you who the most popular fighter in Bellator history, and when I say this, I mean by a mile, okay. like not uh, even close. Who's the most popular was, fighter in Bellator history? Was Ch- uh, Chandler? Chandler's not even close. Not even close. Uh, Chandler's not even close. Not okay. even close. I don't know. It's Kimbo Slice. Wow. Dude, Kimbo Slice is the most popular fighter. Rest in peace. He's the most popular fighter. That guy th- drew 3 million live viewers on Spike TV for his fight against either Ken Shamrock or Dada 5000. I have to go and double check that part. Yeah. But like the other guys, are, they can't even touch a million. You know what I mean? Like, we're talking orders yeah. of magnitude. And this was after washing out of UFC, that whole weird boxing thing. Obviously, all the Elite XC stuff where he was fighting Seth Petrozelli and it all blew up in his face. We're talking yeah. years after that, and he's still pulling millions of yeah, people. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, right? so so, basically what you're saying is Connor could come come back a decade from now and be like, Oi, Jake, where's my boxing <laughs> match? And everyone would still watch? Or... It's hard to say. I mean, the, the future is hard to predict in, in that particular kind of way. And I, and I want to be clear, as much as I'm defending the idea that like passions die hard, and they do, if he suffered like a genuinely terrible loss to someone very good right, and very right, you know, like that would hurt his stock as a pay-per-view um, uh, star, right? It would really right. hurt his stock. But over the long term, all the worldwide fans he's built, they're not just going to go away tomorrow. They're, they're not. Yeah, he's got a, a serious fan base around him. And... This this whole thing where I'm not entirely sure about like the 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 whole getting out of the uh, testing pool and and then I got some like, ideas on that. Okay, so well, let me just like explain from from a weightlifting perspective. Like you can't do that in Olympic sports. Like you can't just be like, hey guys, I'm <laughs> retiring. Go take a bunch of gear and then come back. Like you can't do shit like that. They they have stipulations to keep f- people from doing that. Now Connor's in a different country. Obviously, I believe he's living in Ireland. Yes, that would be my belief. Uh, and he's said that he's out of the USADA testing pool. I don't know what they do with WADA's or, or any of that. But it's it's a very strange situation. Maybe you can give a little bit more insight on it. So the basic idea is that the. Connor has created a bit of a firestorm, and I want to be clear that I actually really support him, and I'll tell you why in a minute, but here's the basic idea. Up to this point, when the UFC has been working with USADA, which is, I think, roughly 2016 on, uh, there were two ways to get out of the testing pool. One is you could, like, legitimately retire, like, hey, I really am done, like, I just don't want to do this anymore. You get out of the testing pool, and if you want to get back in to go fight, you have to declare anything you took, you have to be in the testing pool for six months, you get pulled from the rankings, like, you're out, 
Okay, uh, or you get cut from the organization. You can go do whatever you want after that. Those are the two ways. But then something happened weird with Connor after his last fight with Poirier, where he broke. I think he broke like maybe even spiral fracture, but he broke it. I think both his tib and his fib. Like like the, the, the the whole shit got broken. Are okay? they not? Are they not telling people what exactly happened, or do we know? Uh, we do know the. No, they haven't been very specific with it, but right. I, my understanding is that in his entire shin bone and everything around it broke. Okay, go okay? go on, go on, go on. So what happened with him was he did. He's also shooting a movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, but the whole point was he got out of the testing pool. But here's the catch: they didn't remove him from the rankings. The only reason people found out about it is because that you can go online, you can see who gets tested how many times, and he wasn't tested for like a year, but he was still in the rankings. We've asked Usada for comment, and they don't really tell us anything. It's clearly an exemption. So I don't know how he did this, but he fucking did this. The reason why I feel like it's okay is is basically this. I have watched the movie of someone's career several times come and go. I've seen what these guys look like on the other end. They are fucked up. They are fucked up a lot. Uh, we're talking ambulatory issues to say nothing of the brain trauma. Their knees are blown out. Their ankles have been surgically repaired. Their shoulders don't work the same. Their back and necks, are they look like they've been in car crashes. Yeah, they just kind of walk around. I mean, you cannot imagine how much trauma over the course of a 15-year career these guys suffer. It Ugh. is astronomical. And so, while I understand there is a central tension happening here between what people want to see as drug-free sport integrity, I I'm going to tell you that these guys look like they have been in motherfucking car crashes. And I do believe an exemption should be made if this guy has to take growth hormone so that the bones fuse together better so he has a life after fighting. I have to tell you, I really don't have a problem with that, candidly. And also, everyone knows what the fuck is going on. You know the score with him. You take a fight with him, you know what he's been doing. It's not like he's been... It's not exactly like, like he's hiding right. everything here. You know, on Rogan, they they talk about Connor like all the time. And um, what, no matter who it is, I think... I was just listening to the episode with Derek from More Plates, More Dates, and they were talking about Connor and his his uh, shin or fib tib. And I guess Rogan was like, you know, every kind of serious injury like that, like it's almost impossible to get back to to any state of normalcy. And I think that 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 people just like continually forget like what injuries do to people's mentality. Like, to come back from something like that and to have a metal rod in your leg. Like, I, was it your show where you guys were talking about the curse of the broken leg? The curse of the, the shattered leg? Like, and, and basically thinking about all of those people who have shattered their leg and what happened to their career after it. They had made some comebacks. I think Chris Weidman hasn't come back since. He has not. Yeah. And then you think about Anderson Silva. He wasn't the same. Uh, and there's a couple others. But, like, it's it's a – God, that injury, man. If it's as bad as – the crazy thing was it didn't look as bad as Weidman or Silva. But it honestly could be, you know, if we knew the information around it. It's like you don't – we don't need any medical information to see how shitty Chris Weidman's leg was. <laughs> right? But – Connors, you're telling me it's a spiral fracture. It, it looks bad. Like, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't look nearly as bad as those ones. Uh, but it could be, you know? Right. And I, I just think that folks are deeply, deeply unaware. Like, you can be like, well, don't, don't in catastrophic injuries, even like paralysis happen in American football, which is true. But, dude, like... You know, people don't last in the UFC on average, but there's a lot of people that people really like that last in the UFC a really long time, a Frankie Edgar, a Tony Ferguson, or whatever. Yeah. And the list of injuries, you guys just can't... They don't declare it to you. You have to talk to them off the record at times. They are... You cannot believe a human has suffered this much trauma. Um, both shoulders repaired, both knees repaired, both wrists all fucked up, both ankles all... I mean, you, we're talking extensive amounts of anesthesia being pumped into them for 15 years so they could get, you know, knifed by a doctor. Doctor and it goes on and on and on and on. Um, like, 
I understand that folks have concerns about the integrity of sport, but I would just I would really assert that if you're there is also a natural tension between the rights and I think some of the more humane ways in which to view athlete welfare long term that are in we have to say it out loud that are in direct contravention to more aggressive forms of anti-doping. Something has to give. And I've seen what happens when we give and we say, okay, well, let's make sure the results have as much integrity as possible by virtue of having the strongest anti-doping. I've seen what happens on the other end i'm not very comfortable with it guys get they leave the sport crippled um if there's a way and by the way we're not talking about a huge amount of guys who are even going to be able to do anything like this it's going to be a handful yeah at most. right but if right. there are a few guys who could benefit by not having catastrophic long-term injury i gotta tell you i'm i don't really mind yeah yeah i guess i i guess i never really thought about it from from that perspective um but it is very interesting to see him kind of get out of the testing pool while still being ranked. It's just, it's, it's always ends up being a shit show, you know, and there's always <laughs> ends up being gray area. It can never just be okay. Anti-doping is the move. Well, because then you have all the issues with anti-doping. I mean, trust me from my sport of weightlifting, like it is chock full of anti-doping issues oh i've been watching the world yeah. championships there's some physiques in the 96 kilo category it's our 89 whatever one it was that was yeah. like holy shit you know yeah i mean look they're they're everyone's favorite uh weightlifter who's a woman was popped in 2014 as a junior uh she was not allowed to compete in rio in 2016 and she just broke the snatch world record uh in 2022 to act as if like there were no drugs to help in that at all is you know, it's kind of kind of ridiculous. Is it possible? Maybe. I don't know. Lasha Talhadza, the greatest weightlifter of all time, was popped, was popped right at the exact same time as a junior. I think it was 2014. Could have been earlier. He came back, and he's only been stronger ever since. So nothing's really changing. It's just becoming how, do you, how can you protect your athlete the most, and how can you do these things? It's just like athlete protection and all of these different things like do they really matter in the long run when we're not really fighting this like cold war of like let me show you how many more medals i can get than than the other country and and i mean through through the olympics right if the olympics were something that we could provide to say hey we're a better country than you and and other countries could do the same thing but the illustriousness of that is kind of going away and we're going to see this sport out of the Olympics. Sorry, I went on a little tangent here, but it's just fresh on my memory. Um, but let's let's get back to 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 fighting. Um, and I I do want to talk like a little bit more about boxing and its relationship to MMA because um, I can always think back about that interview. It was on HBO, I believe, and it was Joe Rogan. Uh, arguing with some boxing. Lou DiBella. Lou DiBella. Yeah. Yes. And what was, I mean, Joe obviously destroyed him. Joe owned him because Joe loves boxing. And I know you love boxing too, mm -hmm. right? But it's like th there's certain objective facts, or maybe not objective, but subjective things that are very tangible as to why we are enjoying MMA on such a level lately. And this kind of old idea of like, MMA being this crude sport is starting to go away. What are what are some of those things? Like when we compare MMA to boxing, what are its advantages as far as viewership or just overall love for the sport goes? Well, um, so certainly boxing is inherently designed in a way where if you just look at the structure of the industry and like how power is meted out and who has it and how it's exercised, it is designed basically to be a clusterfuck, and I, people hate it for that reason. And I understand that. Like, dude, how many times? Like, we were supposed to have, we were supposed to already have Errol Spence versus Bud Crawford, like the fire of the, of the not the century because that would have been Pacquiao Mayweather, but you know, our generation's version of that or something. And it, they just can't get done because you cannot. There's just so many mechanisms in play that make it very difficult, um, and that really hurts the sport. But the reality of the sport is that and this might surprise you. You have to make it that way to protect the athlete's interests. You have to have this sort of like balkanized world that makes progress difficult. And there is plenty of exploitation in boxing, but it actually makes it less than what it ordinarily would be. 
And MMA is very, uh, you know, with, by virtue of the UFC, very vertically or, um, integrated. And so it's is, exploitative in that way. Well, there's, it, that's a debate or to more, be had. More. Well, well, it's a debate to be had, and there is a court case ongoing about this very question. Like, is this a, uh, not a monopoly but a monopsony? Is it a monopsony? And the court is actually going to adjudicate on that. We're actually going to get some kind of ruling probably in the next few years. But oh, hold on, my daughter just walked in. You can't do that. Please, please. Hold on. <laughs> I had it locked before, and uh, she did it this time. Dude, that's like two times in a week. All right, where was I? Sorry. Uh, uh, no, but the, like, the you're the talking about why MMA is popular. So, yeah, well, the court basically, uh, you know, uh, coming up with a conclusion of whether it's not a monopsony. I've never heard that term before. Monopsony, yeah. Instead of one seller, uh, it's one buyer. Ah, okay. Right? Yep. So that would be the that would be the idea, and we don't, like there's. This is being debated with academics on, like, literally academics on both sides, and they're trying to figure out what's what and all that kind of stuff. But I guess the thing I would say is that MMA, uh, obviously, for all the things we talked about before, how it's like constantly evolving and it's been marketed well and all that kind of stuff. There, the UFC just also the, at this point, what they were really, really clever about is just kind of waiting out their failed competitors. In some cases, buying them out. And now they have like this is what people fail to appreciate. Like they've got eighty per- estimated. 80% of the world's talent all under contract together at the same time. Like, dude, you can do a lot with that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that yeah. is this going to I mean, how many even PB, PBC would be the biggest promoter in boxing in terms of like the roster size. Right. And they would have at most sub 50%, you know, right. not, not even that, you know? Yeah. So um, it, it's just, they've got, so they, they, this didn't happen all at once, you know, over time, they just kind of got like, they, they made better decisions. They got better acquisitions. Their contracts, there's a debate to be had about how onerous they are. Um, but now they've just accumulated this. The thing I will tell you, though, and this is, to me, neither good nor bad, just kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. One thing I have noticed, and I, it sounds like I'm introducing something to be polarizing. I am not, but it is something I have seen so consistently. It's just kind of weird. Um, I have never been to an MMA fight, and I should add something, I've never even seen one, including in Brazil, that had a majority black audience. Uh, I have been to many boxing fights where only it was 90% African-American or let's say some combination of African-American and Latino, right? So one thing that has kind of happened is the sports have split in audiences where, yes, of course, there's crossover in any number of different directions, especially along Latin uh, Hispanic right. lines they, they tend to go both ways and all kinds of stuff but there is this kind of self I hate to use the word but self-segregation into one, one group goes into one sport and one goes into another and there's no real good explanation for it that I can think of other than it just has sorted itself that way well but wouldn't you have said that that was what a boxing crowd looked like since however long you know like it's it's always been somewhat of a marginalized sport if you will and and uh whether it's poor white poor black poor mexican like it's it's kind of been around that that sport for a while now you have ufc and there might be uh it might be a more heavily white crowd but i don't know i I just think it might have existed before mma Right, that, I that think, type of crowd. I think there's something to be said for that because, as you well, I mean, everybody knows, like, Hispanic cultures are just rock-ribbed fight fans in yes. any number of different yes. directions. Like, that's just who they are. I would say African-Americans in, in general have been that way as well. Yeah. What I will say is I feel like there's a lot of guys who look like you and me who in the last 10, 15 years or whatever it's been have just kind of been trained to be fight fans who ordinarily had fallen out of love with boxing or right. just moved yes. in a separate direction. Yes. And so for someone like me, I like both almost, not quite equally, but pretty close. But uh, I just feel like they were lost so to whatever reason, about 90s boxing kind of lost them somewhere. And the UFC kind of grabbed up that whole demo instead. Yeah, so it, it honestly, like... I, I keep saying MMA, but really it is the UFC that has made this thing what it is, right? I mean, essentially, that that was the first explanation that we had right in the beginning of this conversation was that it was the marketing of the UFC that changed everything. And, and the um, I forget the term you made, but like to make it official. To, yeah, to, to, to make, get it basically regulated and sanctioned. Yeah, regulated, by regulated. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, so yeah, I, I think um, you you had mentioned like, 
the shit show aspect. And that's something I want to get into because this is very fresh. And I've been listening. I listened to the last uh, uh, Morning Combat. And um, this is definitely a hot topic. And it's something that you and I can like definitely discuss at length because in, in weightlifting, there's this version of it that I've talked about before. It's this rule called the press out. Uh, it's a very weird rule, um, and I think that it should be changed. It should be... Is it the one where your elbow kind of slides or whatever? Yes. Or breaks yes. or whatever? And uh, I have a compilation of some lifts that if there was no decision on it, there was no judge's decision, like nobody would know what the answer is, even <laughs> though they had made the lift, right? Like the lift had been made. Um, and then when we find out what the judge's decision was, it's a total coin flip. It's a total whatever. And it's just because the rule exists in the first place. And I think you know where I'm going with this because there's a parallel, but maybe not exactly a parallel because this isn't just about rule. This is about judgment. And I know you have massive beef lately and probably for a while now with judgment in MMA, mainly in Las Vegas, where it's supposed to be the bastion of 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 uh, fighting commissions if you could just i i just want to get like your overall thesis on judgment in this sport because i i feel like things need to change if we look at and we'll get into you know patty a little bit as well um but i i just i want to hear your thoughts on this so basically for folks who don't know uh, they all think that ufc hires their own judges they are not allowed to do that by law by law they are forbidden from doing that it doesn't exist there's no way to do that it just couldn't happen. The state runs the sport um, to a degree. You might argue incompetently, but essentially they are the ones in charge, not the UFC. So they don't have their own referees. They don't have their own. Um, they might have their own cut cut men, but in general, anyone officiating, timekeepers, judges, referees, anyone in the officiating crew, that's run by the state. Now they get a cut from the promoter to pay for all these things in a very modest way, but that's basically how it works. So here is the basic problem today. You can have a long discussion about it, but the basic idea is that what has happened was we needed an architecture, as I mentioned, aforementioned, a language, some kind of uh, port in the storm that folks could look at and be like, aha, I recognize this as a thing. So what MMA tried to do early on, although Pride in Japan and then one championship do not do this, but in general here in America, we just use what's called the 10-point must system. This is what you might recognize from boxing. Someone wins around 10-9. They get dropped, they win around 10-8. Like that, yeah? Except they only have three rounds in MMA and five for title fights, so there's one problem. You don't have enough numbers to really fully get the... Over the course of 12 rounds, you get a much more nuanced view than you would over the course of three, right? You can only lose one round if you want to win a fight. It goes all three in MMA. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make here is that architecture has been very difficult to retrofit. Now, I will say that the current version is the people have really tried... But you also have to remember something. So one, you have this like old version of architecture that they've had to slowly erode and change and turn into its own thing. And they have MMA. It's called 10-9 and we call it a 10-point must system, but it is very distinct from boxing. And that's good. Right. But the problem is, A, most people don't know that. That's the first thing. They don't know that it's like widely different. They couldn't tell you like how a fight is judged. Most MMA journalists couldn't tell you how a fight is judged. It's actually quite complicated. That's the other part. It's not it's not easy or intuitive to understand. And the third part is MMA is not regulated federally, right? There is no American commission. There's a California commission or a Nevada commission or a Texas commission. They're not all the same quality, not even by a long shot. And they can be good for business. It's good for business to go to Texas or to Florida, especially during the pandemic. But your commissions down there are fucking clown shows, man. You get people get hurt down there. Like it's they're, they're you're not safe fighting there, in my opinion. I'll just be very clear about that. Interesting. California, California actually has a very good commission, um, and they make mistakes like any commission does. New Jersey's got a good one. So the other part about that is not only are the commissions different levels, but they may actually have slightly different rules. Um, you can't need an opponent who has one hand on the mat versus two hands on the mat. Um, you can't do certain kinds of cornering in certain ways, or you might only be able to have two cornermen versus one, or the rules are just different from state to state, quality commission to quality commission. Doc, what, what, what doctors are they hiring? Like, are they hiring a guy for stitches who does actually ER surgery? That would be great. Or did they hire a guy who's, you know, uh, a radiologist like he can't really do shit for stitches like th these are things that happen in commissions on the judging side 
if you know the system and you have studied it, it can be quite valuable. But right. the gap between what the experts know and what the rest of the public knows to me is too wide and the system not intuitive enough to explain to people. So if we look at then this recent fight with Patty, is this a great example of the, the public just having no fucking idea what's going on? Um, Cause, actually, cause, in this case, it might, it might be the reverse, right? Uh, where here's what my... This is basically... I could go into a lot of things. Let me just summarize one of the one of the major problems that I have with the current scoring uh, criteria as it's listed. Right. There is not one scorecard that works. There are many. And here's the real mindfuck. It is very possible in any... And listen to the words I'm saying. Any close MMA fight to have a reasonable scorecard for one guy and another one to have a reasonable scorecard for the other. And by the way, even then in wide departure, here is the reality. Any close fight could be 30-27 for either guy. The criteria in my judgment does not do a good job of simplifying ways to identify differences and in telling you what's the difference between a good card and a bad card. Because the reality is if they're all acceptable, then what's... What's the? How do we know? How do we have a signpost for what's better than what's worse? There's really no way to tell because so much latitude is given to the judges, not interpretation of what they think fighting is, but what they think the criteria is as it applies to that fight. Okay, so so I I just I just literally before we uh, started this saw this video of Joe Rogan's reaction. Did you see this reaction to oh, the patty? Oh, uh, when he was in the cage for the patty fight? Yes. Yeah, like, he was like, come on, you're kidding, yeah. kidding me. Why is that? Why do you think he had that reaction? Or do you, do you feel it was correct? Um, I do feel that was correct. That was a horrendous scorecard. There was one judge, Chris Lee, who had it 29-28 patty, which, again, I'm going to tell you, your audience may or not agree with this, but I'm telling you, I talked to a lot of judges. That is a that is a just I'll say this justifiable scorecard, especially at in the best, way that he right? had so it. So justifiable at best, but not justified. Yeah, justifiable, but not great in my right. judgment. Okay. okay, not great, um, but not failing. You know, uh, because he had the first round for Jared Gordon, and then the subsequent two for Patty. The other judges both had round one, the very clearest round for Jared Gordon, for fucking Patty. It's like, dude, you cannot be serious. And by the way, one of the judges, I'm going to say his name one more time, Douglas Crosby was in the, the night before, was in Mohegan Sun in Connecticut in, uh, for a Bellator card, a very important Bellator card, the main event, right, for the bantamweight title of that organization, the, the tournament semifinals, having a tournament. He had a 50-45 for the guy who lost. It is the first 50-45 ever in a five-round bout in professional MMA that went to the loser. <laughs> and then he flew across the country and handed Patty a 29-28, where Patty won the first round 10-9, despite that being Gordon's by far best round. You got to be fucking kidding me. Okay, you got to so be kidding me. <laughs> that, so that's what I mean. Like, how often is that happening? And like... Is this something to worry about? Like, do we need to change scoring? I mean, so so you're saying he did a 50-45 to the loser in a championship bout. Yeah. Right? Because it's a it's a five round round yeah. fight. Yeah, like an all-time dog shit card, right? Yeah. And then comes over and hands uh Patty the uh, first round, which is right. which is obviously just, incorrect. It, like incomprehensible, basically, right. is what that is. Right. So, <laughs> so here's can we here's, find here's, judges? Should we find them? Like what the So here's I, I one think, of the problems. Yeah. Here's one of the problems, right? People talk a lot of shit about judges. Um and but getting back to the commissions, like I have friends who fight locally. They will fight in Virginia now because Virginia's gotten better about regulations. But like ten years ago, I would tell them if you have an amateur fight, do not fight here. Like go to New Jersey. Like there's states, this is not the case anymore, but there's states like 10 years ago where like you didn't know if your opponent had HIV, like they were just no blood test. They could just showing up whoever the fuck that guy is, you know, you're just fighting them. So anyway, the reality about commissions is they are Nevada would be a difference because it gets so much money because of so many events that they regulate their budget is going to be much higher, but you got to understand something like it's a volunteer army, man. Like the only access to talent that they have as a commission is who just comes through the door and yeah. everyone thinks they could be a judge. Let me let me burst that bubble for you. No, you couldn't. No, you couldn't. 
not without very, very specific training. It's not like driving a car. Oh, I can drive a car. No, dude, it's not what that is. It's like driving an 18-wheeler. It's it's very, very different. The things you have to do and the tools you might have, by the way, they don't have access to stats. Most states don't have money for instant replay. Like Instant replay is not universal. Like, I don't know if folks know that. It's only in states that have the ability to do it by virtue of having monitors to begin with and then other sorts of uh, regulatory policy framework that allows for it. Like, there's all kinds of shit. The answer is they don't pay him enough. They don't They don't pay him very much. Yeah. Um, some of the bigger referees, like a Herb Dean, he might make a couple grand on a night, you know, something like that. But, um, like, they, it takes years to get those assignments. You have to do all kinds of shit cards, amateur cards, low-level pro cards. You have to show ability at it. You have to work your way up. And then eventually you get to a point where you can do cards like the UFC. Dude, people just don't want to do that. And so we're at the, we're at the mercy of... The donks who just walk in the door and say, I'll do it. And some of them are good. A lot of them are not, you know? Do you, what is this recent uh, beef with Patty and Ariel Hawani? Long story short, I think um, a lot of fighters beef with Ariel. A lot of fighters beef with MMA media generally. I don't say that to be disparaging of Ariel, who I've known for a long time. We've worked together for a long time. We actually did one of the Jake Paul Showtime weigh-in streams, actually for the Anderson Silva fight. So I saw him recently, and we talked. And um, I think a lot of fighters beef with him because he's, you know, he's got a very high-profile um, job, and and his general name is certainly significant, and he holds an important role in MMA media. They have a personal dispute about, you know, I wanted you to be on the show, or I, or no, excuse me, no, like Patty thought he want uh, Ariel wanted him on the show, and that he invited himself, and should he have been paid? Should he have not have been paid? I think there's another issue between uh, Ariel and his manager, Graham Boylan, who you may not know this runs Cage Warriors, which is one of the best promotions in all of Europe. Like their best guys, they're very, very Conor McGregor, two weight world champion out of Cage Warriors, perfect example. Um, and then they've got this sort of back and forth about what one said about the other. I, I, in general, Ariel, I think, is quite right, but it, it's a long and sordid affair of, you know, who said what. Do you worry about being a commentator and being the guy that could, you know, potentially be proven wrong? Or I don't know if you've heard the the Teddy Roosevelt thing, the uh, the man in the arena. Yeah, um, it's painted on the walls in a lot of MMA gyms. You may not know that. It, well, I mean, I've been into a few, and I think it's kind of corny thing to paint on now at this point, probably, because yeah. it's just been on every single wall. Um, but do you worry about that, or do you try, like, what sort of tactics do you try to, to avoid being like that person? Yeah, it's a great question. It is something I have struggled with the most in my career, and I still get it wrong, man. What I would say is that, for folks who may not realize this, you look at fighters and you think these guys are tough. And believe me, they're tougher than you could ever imagine. Like, they are psychotically tough. Like, not like that. This sport should be regulated by the government. Like, you cannot trust these guys to make good health decisions for themselves, right? Because they're so intensely focused on the goal, nothing else matters. Like, and, and I mean that in ways you couldn't imagine. I've seen guys advocate for certain forms of amputation as a way to just get back to a fight quicker. I'm not even doing a bit. That's a real thing. And I've heard it from multiple fighters before. So we're talking about these kinds of guys. But, um, sorry, I lost track of the question. It's just just, just being, like, being... Oh, yes, the commentator part. Yes, yeah, I'm sorry. I got, okay, I got okay. lost. No, that was a great the, point. That was a great point. Yeah. These fuckers the, are The tough. point I want to make before I meandered was that I have struggled with getting it right. These guys are very, very tough, more than you could ever imagine, but they are incredibly sensitive to words. And that might sound a little crazy, but once you begin to realize it's just how it is, they, they live and die in their own minds. And so any obstacle, what you might consider to be fair critical analysis or, hey, that guy didn't have a great performance or that's an unfortunate loss, you might even say it in a way that you did not in any way intend for it to be bad. Uh, and they'll take it bad, and they will get really mad at you. I've been confronted more than once. Like, it, it's a thing that happens. I I can't live my life in fear of that. I, you, there, you owe the... you uh, listen, Either you owe the audience honesty or you don't. And you do. You do. So what I would say, there's a difference, though, between honesty then and then... And brutality. Yeah. And so yes. I think this is a line that Stephen A. Smith... And who's his co-host? What's his name? Uh, well, it used to be Skip Bayless. Yeah, Skip Bayless. Yeah. That they cross oftentimes, so much so. Yeah, I mean, they, but they, 
they're Charlie Murphy, right? They're they're line steppers on purpose, right? right they're habitual right. line steppers. I mean, that's that's the bit. I don't want that kind of life. That's okay. not okay. for me. So that that is absolutely that clarifies a lot for me. Yeah. So, so the thing I was going to add was you owe the you owe the audience honesty, but you also owe them one humility when you get it wrong. We have an entire segment on our show on Fridays where we talk about all the shit we get wrong because I think awesome. it's important to just That's be awesome. very honest. Yes, you have to. You have to. That's super the audience cool. they will trust you not because you're a genius. They will trust you because they can trust that what you're telling them is what either true or if they know you have a bias, they can recognize it because you're honest with them. You have to be honest with them. So that's the first thing I would say. The other part is you have to give a certain amount of humanity to the fighters. You don't have to be always deferential to them. I think that's a mistake a lot of people right. make because they don't want to hurt their feelings. You're going to hurt their feelings. But what you should do is be able to listen to it a year later and say, you made a good faith effort to not go over the line. And by the way, I'll say it again. People are going to see this and be like, well, I can point to all these things where you did shit that was over the line. Yes, at times I get it wrong, for sure, for sure. But my orientation is be, don't lie, but be humane. And I think that's the needle I'm trying to thread. I think it says a lot about your character, the fact that you do think about this all the time and that you did take a decent amount of time in explaining this. I mean, there could be somebody out there who's, really good at Twitter, very clever with their, you know, with what they say in front of the camera. Uh, and if I asked them the same question, they'd be like, yo man, I'm just an entertainer, you know? Um, so, so kudos to you for that. This is something honest to God that I've been thinking about a lot lately. There was, uh, it's silly when I say there's a TikTok video, but it was a TikTok video <laughs> and this guy made a highlight and it was Geno Smith. It was Geno okay. Smith at, uh, uh, West Virginia. And he was insane. Do you remember when Geno Smith was at West Virginia, the quarterback Geno Smith? He was a he fucking baller. He was a f he was the fucking truth, right? And so everyone said, "Okay, Geno Smith, first round, first pick, easy, done, yeah." So then the draft comes around. Geno Smith gets picked second round, and I forget like if it was like the thirtieth pick, okay, in the second round, he gets on to I believe it's the Jets, uh, and he. He plays really bad. He plays really bad. And there's a bunch of clips of sports commenters, commentators saying like really, really awful shit about him. Like really, like just saying this guy is hot garbage. That was a sentence. Mm. Could you imagine just like somebody's performance giving their entire life to something and not knowing them as a person, not knowing if they're a bad person or anything like that and just saying this person is hot garbage. And that's what Skip Bayless and and uh, Stephen A. Smith did. Now, looking forward to now, okay? I believe it's been like a decade since then or something. <laughs> Geno Smith has gone all over the league, and now he's on the Seahawks, and he's like having one of the Killing best it. years yeah. of any quarterback, okay? So that's where it's like, well, Stephen A. Smith, you know, where the fuck are you now? Where, what are, where are you saying... Uh, I'm, I got this completely wrong. I think actually he might have said I had him completely wrong, but you can't just say you did something wrong when you went over the line. And I, I, line. And I think what you had mentioned was humanity. You know, you're, you're taking away the guy's humanity when you're criticizing him. And that's, I think, is the thing that makes you step over the line. You can admit you're wrong later, but that doesn't take away the fact that you took away the humanity when you made, when you said the statement. Right. I mean, and, and and again, the guys who like call like athletes like hot garbage and shit like that. That's taking the humanity are, away, right? That's just yeah, making yeah, I mean, dogs it's just, that we can comment on. Yeah, it's just, it's 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 so fake, tough guy, hostile. I'm not trying to be, I'm not tougher than these guys. Like, I'm not trying to be tougher than these guys. I don't have any interest in trying to be tougher than these guys. Like, I'm not interested in doing that. All I want to do is provide what I hope is valuable information that the audience yep. can use to better understand and enjoy their sport. It really is no more complex than that. And again, like you're going to get the line wrong and you're going to be wrong. I can't, dude, I'll tell you, I, I, I made this mistake. I wrote off Andre Orlovsky once. He got really mad at me. He was right. 
He was right. I really fucked that up. That was like a really, he had a really bad nosedive for a time. And he had like five or something losses in a row. And I was like, he was like, you know, mid thirties. I was like, that's it for him. And he mounted this incredible, yes, improbable, but genuine comeback. And he even changed his whole style of fighting to do it. And I was like, wow, man, this, cause I know I wasn't the only guy criticizing him. He must've done that in the most difficult of circumstances. And he, that really taught me a lesson that taught me a lesson. Like, Tell the truth as best you can ascertain it, which means you have a very important responsibility to learn information, to ask good questions, to try to be knowledgeable, but also, um, you know, try to incorporate, as you indicated, that humanity all along the way so that when you're wrong in the end, at least you're not like, like embarrassed about who you were. At least you didn't mistreat someone. Right. As best you can do. I think that really is that that's the saving grace because you're going to be wrong. You're going to yeah. be wrong. It's inevitable. Correct. Try to be wrong without being a fucking dick the whole time. That's the issue. Well, if your goal is to bring valuable information to the sport, you definitely have. I've learned a bunch today and I love watching your stuff. Luke, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we're going to wrap things up. Where can people find you? Well, first of all, thank you. I've been watching your stuff for a long time. Um, who was the starting strength guy? What's his name? Rip? Yeah. Ripto? Yeah. Ripto. Ripto? Yeah. Mark. Uh, yeah. Ripto. I remember, I remember distinctly your like frustrated takedown of the, <laughs> of, Oh yeah. Of like, yeah. yeah, women shouldn't be in or whatever, whatever, like, you know, thing he said, I don't even remember. This one, There's but, been some uh, stuff that have been uncovered on what he said on his forums that are absolutely ridiculous that I didn't yeah. even touch on. They're actual, yeah. like pretty much cancelable things, but, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Where, yeah, where anyway, can people uh, find you? Yeah, anyway, long story short, thank you because you do a service for me as well. If you want to find me, it's real simple. You can just search my name. It's youtube.com slash Luke Thomas for my personal channel. And then I do a podcast with my co-host Brian Campbell called Morning Combat. It's run, uh, it's where CBS employees, but Showtime runs the podcast, which is a weird thing, but it's true. And uh, three times live in the, uh, a week plus post-fight stuff. And we're on the road and we're doing interviews. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's my favorite podcast. Uh, MMA podcast by far. Thanks. Man. So, all right, Luke, I will uh, see you later. Talk to you later. And guys, thank you so much for watching and or listening.